You're listening to Plenary Session. It's better late than never this week on Plenary Session. We've had a bit of a delay while I was kept busy doing many other things. But I'm back, and today we're going to talk about a few interesting things. Our guest today is Dr. Miriam Knoll. She's a practicing radiation oncologist in the Hackensack Medical System, a graduate of Mount Sinai Radonc Residency, and a leading voice in radiation oncology. And she's going to share some of her insights about how residents can pursue that first job out of residency or fellowship, and what we might do differently about medical residency training and about the pipeline in medical specialties. You won't want to miss this discussion. But first, we're going to talk about a few things that were interesting over the last couple weeks. First, I'm going to talk about the Lilly drug, Lartruvo, or Olaritumumab, which was approved in combination with doxyrubicin for patients with certain types of soft tissue sarcoma. This was an accelerated approval, and now we have the confirmatory study, which shows the drug has absolutely no beneficial effect on overall survival. And yet the study that led to FDA drug approval showed a marked and impressive improvement in overall survival from 14.7 months in the control arm to 26.5 months, which was very significant. Yet this was not the primary endpoint of this study, and it was a small, underpowered phase two study, which is notorious for these types of errors. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about the implications of this drug approval and about what it means for the FDA's accelerated approval program. We're also going to talk about a viewpoint that appeared in JAMA. This was by Dr. Sharpless and Dr. Dorishaw from the NCI. And this was about new directions we might go forward in cancer trials. Now, some of these new directions are reasonable, but others capitulate so much to the biopharmaceutical industry and, in fact, might well have been written by the industry themselves. And I'm going to try to pull apart these strands. Finally, I'm going to talk to you about an issue that... I find very interesting in oncology. This is the use of gene expression profiling and carcinoma of unknown primary. This is a technology that took off a few years ago for which I wrote a commentary in the European Journal of Cancer where I pointed out that there was several bits of evidence, most notably evidence of clinical utility that this test had not yet shown. And now at last, we have the randomized control trial, a phase two study in the JCO, which has looked exactly at that question, clinical utility. You won't want to miss this. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us, patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose, and supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. First up. Olaritumumab. Now, many of you know that the FDA can approve drugs based on surrogate endpoints that are only thought to be reasonably likely to predict improvements in hard endpoints like overall mortality and quality of life through a pathway called accelerated approval. If you approve a drug via accelerated approval, there is a post-marketing efficacy commitment, meaning that you have to show your drug improves a ideally more important endpoint, ideally overall survival quality of life, though from the paper 
that came out last year by the FDA, they show that in many cases they allow conversion from accelerated to regular approval based on a different surrogate endpoint, or in some cases, the same surrogate endpoint, which is a very problematic thing. We'll talk about that in a future podcast. But be that as it may, you should know that according to a series of legislation, most recently the FDA SIA bill in 2012, the FDA has a regulatory authority to utilize accelerated approval for drugs that improve a surrogate endpoint or intermediate endpoint thought reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. Accelerated approval has never meant the FDA can approve a drug based on a secondary hard endpoint. By that I mean, when you do a small phase two study, you ideally or and typically are powered to detect a difference in response rate or perhaps progression-free survival, but almost surely you're not powered or intending to detect a difference in overall survival. You may be underpowered for that or that might not be your primary endpoint. And yet, in the case of oleratumumab, the FDA issued an approval in October of 2016, several years ago. They granted this drug approval based on a small phase two study of 133 patients with particular types of soft tissue sarcoma who were randomized to doxyrubicin plus or minus this antibody. And what they found was the drug oleratumumab, when added to doxyrubicin, did not improve response rate. There was a small difference in PFS from 4.1 to 6.6 months. The p-value on that was 0.0615. And this is a trial that used a higher alpha threshold than we typically use because it's a phase two study. The overall survival curves happened to favor the drug with a p-value of 0.0003. And there was a difference in median overall survival of 14.7 months from doxorubicin alone to 26.5 months. So the FDA made the call that even though this was a secondary endpoint and even though almost surely there was some imbalance in the baseline characteristics of the few patients who got this drug versus the patients who got doxyrubicin, we were going to take the plunge and grant this drug accelerated approval. But here, accelerated approval is not based on a surrogate endpoint. It's based on a hard endpoint, overall survival. It's just that the trial was not intended to, nor was it powered to, detect a statistically significant and clinically meaningful improvement in overall survival. It happened to do that, and that's something that obviously drew the attention of people who were looking at it. And thus, the FDA broke with precedent and approved this drug based on improvement in overall survival in an underpowered phase two study. Let's take a look at that press release from a few years ago. Dr. Pazder of the FDA is quoted as saying, for these patients, Lartruvo added to doxyrubicin provides a new treatment option. Quote, this is the first new therapy approved by the FDA for the initial treatment of soft tissue sarcoma since doxyrubicin's approval more than 40 years ago, end quote. This is something that I notice is often said in regulatory spaces, which is that there are some cancers for which we haven't had a good drug in many, many years. Nothing has garnered FDA approval. And people use that as if it means we should lower the bar and somehow accept drugs that barely work or don't work at all in these situations. But to me, that logic is a bit like you're aboard a ship sailing on the ocean for many, many months and you've run out of fresh water. And the logic is, well, if I don't have fresh water, maybe... I've been out here so long, it's been so long since I've had a glass of fresh water, I should just drink this salt water right here on the ocean. And of course, that would not be a good idea. Similarly, I'm not so sure that the efficacy requirement should be tied to when was the last drug you approved. I think those are separate concepts. Be that as it may, the FDA celebrated this. It was 
added to their total of all of the drugs they approved for the year in 2016, which is a number that they love to tout because as we all know, that is the gold standard measure of progress, the mere number of drug approvals there were that year. Now, fast forward a few years. 2019, January 24th, the FDA discovers the company, Eli Lilly, has put out a press release that the phase three trial of olaritumumab failed to show an overall survival benefit when added to doxyrubicin compared to doxyrubicin alone. In other words, a phase three trial of this exact same study was negative. And the FDA writes, update. The FDA approved Lartruvo in combination with doxyrubicin for certain types of soft tissue sarcoma not amenable to curative therapy under the accelerated approval program. As a condition of approval, Lilly conducted a larger study designed to assess benefit. The recently completed study did not confirm the clinical benefit of Lartruvo. Specifically, the study did not meet the primary endpoint of an improvement in OS. In light of this information, the FDA recommends that patients on the drug should discuss it with their doctor, whether they should remain. Patients who have not yet started the drug should not do so outside of an investigational study. See, they recommend this, but they don't compel it because they haven't yet withdrawn the indication. They write, the FDA is currently reviewing the data and working with the company to determine appropriate next steps. This is the kind of regulatory capture language I don't like. The FDA doesn't have to be working with the company. They need the data to audit the data. And if the data, in fact, confirms there's no OS benefit, they need to pull this drug from the market. Whether or not the company wants that, and it doesn't really require the opinion of the company. If we had to work with the company in all regulatory decisions, we wouldn't need an impartial agency to do it. We could just have the company decide what to do, and somebody could maybe give them some pointers along the way. And I think we have that. That's, that's basically the NCCN guidelines body. So if you want a separate regulatory agency to police this space, they don't need to work with the company. They need to tell the company what to do. And if you have a drug that's supposed to improve OS that doesn't in a phase three study, and you are picking a secondary endpoint in an underpowered phase two, there's a clear answer here. Drugs got to come off the market. But that's not the most, I think, problematic part of this. This is a drug that, according to some things I read online, and I could not find a precise figure, but this drug has sold for something around the range of a few hundred million dollars of sales since it came out on the market. The company should refund that money to the payers. They should refund that money to the patients, and they should refund that money to the public payers who have paid for this drug um, for several years, a drug that clearly does not improve endpoints that matter to patients. It never improved the response rate even in the phase two study, and it certainly doesn't improve overall survival. This is something that I've seen Waleed Jalad and Aaron Kesselheim discuss about some sort of provision to claw back money for accelerated approvals that don't actually do what we think they do. And I like that idea a great deal. Of course, the story of Olartumumab is not good for an initiative that was led by Dr. Gottlieb at the FDA. This is something that was announced. Dr. Gottlieb tweeted about it in March of 2018, which is the following. Dr. Gottlieb tweets, FDA wants to expand accelerated approval pathway beyond traditional surrogate endpoints to include overall survival, a response to advances that make it increasingly possible to identify potential breakthroughs earlier in clinical development. It links to an article where they talk about how accelerated approval typically was reserved for surrogate endpoints and now should be used for overall survival. Jeff Allen from Friends of Pharma Research, I mean Friends of Cancer Research, writes, we are seeing larger effect sizes in early development, often in trials that were not designed to be pivotal. And there's no sense why a trial that wasn't designed to measure something as the primary endpoint should be discounted, is there? Well, only all matters of statistics and science, but besides that, there's no good reason. Uh, so... My understanding is Friends of Cancer Research have a white paper on this topic where they promote this idea. So we have to think about this proposal 
a little bit more closely. The accelerated approval program of the FDA, the use of surrogates broadly at the FDA oncology, is something that's generally overused. We have two-thirds of drug approvals, roughly speaking, coming to the market based on surrogate endpoints. About one half of those approvals use accelerated approval. The other half use regular approval. Chul Kim and I have documented that when they use regular approval for drugs approved on the basis of surrogate, often those are surrogates that do not have published articles assessing the validity of that surrogate. And often when they do, those are low level or poor correlations. That's something I've talked about on this podcast before. So we're already very lax with that on the regular approval side. On the accelerated approval side, we use surrogates that have even less data and even lower correlation coefficients. And this was shown in our paper in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in 2016. But at least one thing about using the surrogates of response rate for accelerated approval is that the drugs that will be coming to market will be active drugs for the most part. They'll be drugs that at least can shrink tumor, have some biological activity. Now, of course, whether or not they make patients better off, i.e. live longer or live better, is absolutely uncertain, but at least they have activity. But by broadening accelerated approval to include overall survival, this won't be for the drugs with responses. Of course, those already have a pathway to accelerated approval. This will be for the drugs that do not have responses, that are inert, that do not have activity, and that happen to have an OS benefit. Now, why did it happen to have an OS benefit? It could be that the drug somehow without shrinking tumor and somehow without slowing the time till tumor grows on PFS magically exerts a post-protocol benefit and improves OS, or that the drug, because it was tested in an underpowered phase two, not suitable nor designed for this purpose, happened to, by chance alone, show this benefit. Which do you think is more likely? It's almost certainly the latter. So the Friends of Pharma Research, I mean Friends of Cancer Research proposal would only further lower the bar and ensure that more and more marginal compounds, drugs that probably don't work, will come to cancer patients. Now, there's no reason for future companies to do the confirmatory study within three years. They can drag their feet just as they do routinely with post-marketing commitments, and you could potentially have a drug on the market for as long as a decade. And the FDA, of course, never exercises its regulatory authority to pull these drugs off the market for merely failing to enforce post-marketing commitments, and you will again find that they won't do that in this case. And so, essentially, what this proposal is, is a lowering of the bar that was based on this white paper and based on this one example. And this example, unfortunately, unfortunately for patients, um, did not work. But the problem is, if we broaden this proposal, we have many, many more olartumumabs. Society will pay a great deal. People will be exposed to drugs with certain toxicity. And cancer patients who are sick, dying, and vulnerable may not have improvements and outcomes that matter to them. The entire purpose of the regulatory system in cancer drug space is to protect sick and vulnerable and dying people from making choices that are not truly compatible with their best interests, choices made out of desperation. And the more we do to erode the simple basic safeguards we have in that space, the worse we do for them. And in fact, an effort that appears to provide more freedom actually provides less freedom because it empowers people only to make choices that really are no good. So I would say this is a bad movement. Of course, I'm not surprised that the current commissioner, who's previously written many things that suggest 
I think, an aversion to evidence-based medicine. I'm, sp- I'm speaking of the Wall Street Journal editorial um, lamenting the use of sham controls for renal artery denervation, which were required to demonstrate that the procedure was ineffective. I'm not surprised that it's that commissioner that proposes this change. And this would be a bad change. And I think the lesson here is, unfortunately, a tough lesson for soft tissue sarcoma, but if there's any silver lining, it's that we should learn from this lesson. We should not expand accelerated approval in this way. And if anything, we should follow the prudent steps that Robert Kemp from the United Kingdom and I recommend in a paper in the BMC cancer med- in the BMC medicine on the use of surrogate endpoints. All right. Oh, the last thing I want to say about Lertruvo. Lertruvo, quote, also received orphan drug designation, which provides incentives such as tax credits, user fee waivers, and eligibility for exclusivity to assist and encourage the development of drugs intended to treat rare diseases. So since this drug received the orphan drug benefits, and since this drug does absolutely nothing for an orphan disease, the makers of this drug should refund the federal purse for all of that revenue and pay taxes on all of these clinical trials because they did not in fact earn that orphan drug drug designation because this is a drug that doesn't work. Modernizing Clinical Trials for Patients with Cancer. This is written by the NCI director, Dr. Sharpless, and by Dr. James Dorishaw from the NCI. These are two senior and important figures in cancer medicine, and here they're writing a viewpoint in JAMA as part of the series Evolving Issues in Oncology. Now, there are many sort of points that these authors make about the directions they want to move in. There's one thing that jumps out at me that's really worth discussing, uh, and then maybe we'll, we'll talk very briefly about the other points. One, I'm just going to read this to you. This is a section called Rethinking Clinical Trials. Because, of course, clinical trials need to be rethought in this new era. Now that we have bioplausible models that are so accurate and so predictive, the need for the old-fashioned, controlled, randomized study, which only separates truth from fiction, that's no longer as necessary. Now that we have drugs that are so profitable, I mean, so bioplausible, um, we no longer need the randomized trial. As long as they're this profitable, I mean, plausible, no need to study it that way. So here's what they write reduce financial pressures of clinical trials. The average per patient cost of conducting a clinical trial has increased sharply over the last two decades, driving an escalation in the total costs of drug discovery and development. Once a drug is approved, the high costs of trials are then passed on to patients in the form of higher drug prices. What an interesting thing to say. Now they continue. The NCI is therefore focused on, quote, right-sizing trials to answer essential questions about the efficacy of new treatments with fewer patients. For example, in some trials of highly active agents, it may be possible to forego traditional control group interventions in favor of a well-annotated synthetic controls created with data from previous trials. The NCI is also exploring the use of novel endpoints that reflect the mechanism of action of the drug under study through, quote, pragmatic trials that are conducted in clinical practice settings and through augmented annotation and aggregation of new and existing trials data to answer clinically relevant questions without additional enrollment. Well, 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 there's a lot to say here. One, the authors catch your attention by alluding to the fact that high cancer drug prices is problematic. And in fact, here I will agree, the high and lofty and unsustainable cost of cancer drugs is crushing patients, society, and even physicians, I think, because we see the burden it it takes on patients and society. 
So we all agree cancer drugs cost way too much. Why do they cost too much? Do they cost too much because of the excessive R&D? Well, Sean Mylankoti and I looked through the entire R&D spending of 10 companies that successfully brought a cancer drug to market, and we peg the average R&D to bring a cancer drug to market at something around $750 million, or just under a third of the Tufts estimate, um, which is nowhere near what the industry says it is. So I think it's clear it's not the R&D spending of the companies that's driving the price, but how about the part that these authors are referring to, the confirmatory phase three study? Once a drug is approved, the high cost of trials are passed on to patients. The only part of the drug approval process they're talking about circumventing is the final pivotal phase three study. So they're saying that if you cut that out, you'd be able to save some money and you pass that savings along to patients. So what would you save? Well, in another paper, we quote an HHS report that says the cost of that pivotal study is around $22 million. Tom Moore and colleagues in JAMA Internal Medicine recently pegged the cost of controlled pivotal studies in oncology at about $35 million. So let's say $20, $30 million. That's the cost of these pivotal studies. Uh, is that going to markedly change the price of a drug that annually pulls a billion dollars in sales, two billion, three billion, four billion? We have cancer drugs that pull nearly seven billion, eight billion dollars per sales in a single year. This is a drop in the bucket. The cost of the randomized controlled trial has nothing to do with the cost of the drug. And reducing the cost of the randomized trial will do nothing to reduce the cost of the drug. It's a foolish and misleading argument. Moreover, it is absurd. It's as foolish as saying, you know, these automobiles cost so much. A BMW retails routinely for thirty to 40000 That's just the base price. If you want to lower the price of a BMW, I have a real simple thing you can do. You can just get rid of all crash testing and airbags. By cutting out the airbags and that pesky crash testing, you won't need to crash one or two BMWs. You'll be able to pass that savings along to customers in the form of lower prices. Of course, anyone who knows anything about automobiles would say that's absurd. What if somebody made a modification of the car that led to it to become a death trap? There would be no way for the consumer to know because we no longer have crash testing. Well, similarly, the phase three randomized controlled trial is designed to clarify that the efficacy of a drug, the benefits the drug provides, outweigh the harms. It's the only study that can do so. And to cut it out is the most foolish thing you can do. And to do that under the guise that you will lower drug prices is at best misleading, misunderstanding of the issue. At worst, it's outright propaganda. And I, I hate to see it. And this is not just my opinion. Alex London, an esteemed bioethicist from Carnegie Mellon University, went online and has a wonderful tweetorial on this topic. Finally, as to the synthetic control arms, you can aggregate the data from a series of clinical trials and you will get some estimate of the control arm, but that's only useful for hypothesis generation for a benchmark. We see over and over in breast cancer that by doing this exact synthetic control arm method, they come up with an estimate for what the event rate should be. And then lo and behold, you read the discussion and they say something like, oh, the event rate was lower than anticipated. Why is the event rate lower than anticipated when you essentially used a, quote, synthetic control arm to postulate the event rate? It's lower than anticipated because of secular trends in mortality, because of improved diagnostic imaging that's perhaps leading to an upstaging of patients, the so-called Will Rogers effect, that's perhaps leading to a lower disease burden amongst people at that stage, which in turn translates to the illusion, a secular trend in improved stage outcomes that isn't driven by improvements in technology, but just by more accurate staging, by upstaging people who would be previously staged in a lower stage category. In other words, 
if the synthetic control arm has over and over led to clinical trials that, quote, underestimate the event rate, what on earth gives you any confidence that it's going to be good enough to make strong causal inference about drugs with modest to marginal effect sizes? That is a very bad conclusion to draw, and I think that's not a conclusion that's supported by the data. Another thing they talk about is trials that complement those of industry, such as the NCI-funded dual anti-CTLA-4 and anti-PD-1 blockade in rare tumors trial. See, this is a trial that I'm not sure that we need the NCI to fund. We have orphan drug credits for the industry to move into this space. So the NCI, I think, to some degree, is really just shouldering the R&D costs of the industry by paying for some of these studies, especially because both of these drugs are on patent drugs. There are no generic options for CTLA-4, antibody, nothing for the PD-1 access. They're all branded drugs, and there are plenty of orphan drug credits for the industry to take advantage of. Uh, base trials on molecular alterations. This is a very good and reasonable idea to take people with certain molecular alterations and run a trial on them. It would be best if you would actually have a contemporary control arm. And because many people feel uncomfortable about randomizing patients with a particular point mutation to some molecular drug or not, I have proposed a randomization of the entire strategy. You can randomize patients to the NCI match protocol, for instance, versus a protocol where we prescribe salvage regimens as we have always prescribed salvage regimens based on the best histopathologic understanding of the tumor, based on the known salvage agents used in that space, based on phase two data. And let's just see, is the routine use of molecular profiling in this setting associated with better outcomes? Can that be shown? We tried to do that in the study Shiva, and unfortunately, it failed to meet the primary endpoint. So here too, these trials are valuable, but they'll be more valuable if you had contemporary prospective control arms, or if you included randomization to a non-intervention standard of care control arm, not randomization merely to experimental arms. Overall, what bothered me most about this article that talked about, you know, how we can save patients money if we just eliminated or reduced the need for these pesky randomized trials before drug approval. What bothered me most about it is that the people who are making the argument were not employees of the pharmaceutical industry, because this is the position that the industry should be taking. And the position that the NCI leaders should be taking is the position of evidence-based medicine, of caution, of restraint, of we need more information, we don't want to jump into all these things that we don't know will lead to reliable causal inference. That's the position of the public. And yet we have the position of the public is the position of the industry. So what is the position of the industry? No trial at all? Just give us blanket drug approval? Just pay any amount of money? The industry is moving further and further the other direction. There is no counterbalance here. If the NCI director won't be the counterweight to the industry, who will? There's no one else in the space. So honestly, that's why I get a little depressed on this topic, because when you see capitulation from the leaders of the NCI and the FDA on these two issues, whether or not overall survival can be used for accelerated approval in an underpowered phase two where it was not the primary endpoint. When you see capitulation on the issue that we don't need as many randomized control trials, we can use synthetic control arms, which shockingly often lead us to underestimate the event rate in the control arm because of secular improvements in outcome. When you see these positions held by the governmental agencies that are supposed to protect cancer patients and ensure the generation of reliable evidence, it makes one worried that there has been broad-scale regulatory and professional capture and that essentially the industry has co-opted the public roles.
Last topic, gene expression profiling for carcinoma of unknown primary. Many years ago when I was a fellow, I saw the debut of tissue of origin TOO gene expression profiling testing being launched for carcinoma of unknown primary. And the more I read about this with my colleagues, Andrew Osirin and Farhad Fakhrjani, we had some concerns about this. We saw that this was a technology that was clearly bioplausible and seductive, but we could not find robust evidence that supported it. And so we wrote this article in the European Journal of Cancer Medicine. This is what it was titled. The use of gene expression profiling and mutational analysis increases the cost of care for patients with carcinoma of unknown primary. Does it also improve survival? Question mark. And I just want to read you some excerpts of this article and then talk about a new study that came out very recently in the JCO. So our introduction, and this is something that you know you may not know, but you should know. Carcinoma of unknown primary refers to metastatic disease in the absence of a detectable primary site after an adequate diagnostic evaluation. The diagnosis carries an extremely poor prognosis with median survival of less than one year when treated with cytotoxic agents in contemporary studies. Until recently, the standard approach to carcinoma of unknown primary patients was to use first-line treatment of a cytotoxic drug combination based upon the cancer's histopathological and immunohistochemical similarity to known primary cancers. So in other words, we would make our best guess as to where this is from, often using the location of the largest mass, often using the best histopathologic uh, assessment we can make, talking to the pathologist, and we would go forward with usually a platinum-based doublet. Yet, in recent years, advances in genetic and personalized medicine have led to two principal areas of investigation and departures from the historical treatment approach. Specifically, gene expression profiling can now suggest a tissue of origin for previously indeterminate cases. And they also something else about druggable mutation analysis, but I'm going to focus on the former. So, gene expression profiling is a costly intervention. One type was called cancer type ID, and there's different sort of commercial tests in this space. And it would basically say, we'll take this tissue, we'll look at the gene expression pattern, we'll say, what tissue is it most like? And perhaps in the old days, you might look at it uh, at the carcinoma of unknown primary and just say, this is an adenocarcinoma and I don't know where it's coming from. But now you'd be able to look at it and say, there's a 64% chance this is a GI primary and maybe a 20% chance it's from somewhere else, a breast or lung primary. Um, it would give you that information Okay, so many people change their practice based on this. Why wouldn't you want a test that can give you more information about the tumor from which it may be from? Because if I know it's from a GI primary, I might be more likely to give a 5-FU oxaliplatin. And if I know it's from a lung primary, I might be more likely to give cis and nabpaclitaxel or cis and pemetrexid. I mean, why... Uh, why wouldn't it be the case that a better knowledge of the possible tissue of origin would be of use here? I mean, knowing the tissue of origin is the basic principle of oncologic medicine, and any tool you have that can give you that information should be a tool you use, even if that tool is quite expensive, several thousand dollars. Yet, we reviewed all the evidence in this paper, and we found that even though there was some evidence that the testing could accurately tell you where the tumor arose, there wasn't the key evidence. So here's what we have in the paper in figure one. We have a flow diagram called levels of validation. Step one, demonstrate that tissue of origin testing accurately characterizes tissue of origin when compared against other methods. So they had done that. 
Two, demonstrate what percent of carcinoma of unknown primary patients have their treatment changed by providers when given this information. So this is the key. What is the reclassification? How many people are going to get a different treatment? Because if you have a test that doesn't change what we were going to do anyway, it's implausible to believe that it would actually improve outcomes. Okay, so that was the second step of validation. The third step of validation we propose is show that the routine upfront use of this testing improves survival when compared against traditional methods. That's the gold standard. And if you're going to spend three to $4,000, which is what we found the cost of this test to be, roughly 10 to 20 times the cost of immunohistochemistry to get this extra information, you need to know that the routine use of that testing improves outcomes for patients. And yet, at the time of our paper, it had not done so. And so we conclude this way. The use of personalized medicine driven by advances in molecular biology continues to hold tremendous promise in cancer medicine. At the same time, we must be careful as not all screening tests turn into clinical advances, i.e. tests may provide accurate information, but that information may fail to translate into improved clinical outcomes. The widespread adoption of novel, costly tests without clear evidence they improve outcomes is not a consequence of enthusiasm for personalized medicine. In fact, the most ardent proponent of genomic medicine would demand the same standards for these tests as all other tests in medicine. We believe that conducting assays to assess for druggable mutations or the use of tissue of origin, gene expression profiling should, for the time being, be confined to carefully conduct your clinical protocols. In the case of TOO testing, we favor waiting for the results of an ongoing randomized trial being conducted at Gustav Rusi, which will randomize patients to empiric chemotherapy strategy or a treatment driven based on this analysis. In the meantime, we believe that there has not yet been any evidence to change the paradigm for the care of CUP, or carcinoma of unknown primary. So that's how we conclude. Back, I believe we wrote it in 2015. Uh, no, I'm sorry, it was published online first, November 2015, but I think it was written a lot before then because this is the kind of paper that doesn't get snatched up right away, and we can all wonder why that's the case. But the courageous uh, European Journal of Cancer, which publishes world-class articles, uh, saw the logic of this argument. Um, they saw it very clearly. So fast forward. January 17th, 2019, the Journal of Clinical Oncology, just very recently. This was a randomized controlled trial of just over 100 patients who were randomly assigned to gene expression profiling, which could help you decide what the tissue of origin was for which you would be paired with a chemotherapy backbone drug regimen that was tailor-made for that cancer, known to be highly active or the best available therapy for that cancer, such as Folfox for many GI-based cancers, including colorectal carcinoma, or you were randomly assigned to empiric therapy with a platinum-based doublet, in this case, carbopaclitaxel, a platinum taxane doublet, and that was given to you irrespective of wherever they thought this cancer was from. And this was a randomized controlled trial powered for an improvement in overall survival. Specifically, it had an 80% power to detect a hazard ratio of 0.67 or an increase in one year overall survival from a postulated 35% in the empirical therapy arm to 50% of the group that got gene expression profiling. So again, we're not talking about a home run here. We're talking about a trial po powered for a, I think, meaningful, and modest effect size. I think it's a reasonably powered study. That's what you want to look for, 15% or perhaps even bigger difference. You wouldn't want to power this for a 5% improvement in one year survival. You want to see something bigger. Um, I think that's, that's the kind of improvements we would want. Okay, even with this, I think reasonably powered study, the authors find the following. No 
significant improvement in one-year survival, no improvement in the hazard ratio of overall survival, no improvement in PFS, comparing the empiric strategy against the tissue of origin testing strategy. They write, quote, to our knowledge, this is the first randomized trial to evaluate site-specific therapy on the basis of gene expression profiling. Site-specific therapy determined by molecular profiling did not result in significant improvement in any of those endpoints. They go on to note, this was not because their test didn't change the treatment. In fact, there were many cases of pancreatic or gastric cancer, or even lymphoma that they identified, which did lead to changes in treatment. The authors write, quote, however, despite an accuracy rate of 78.6% for site prediction in silico, our results suggest that comprehensive genome-wide profiling of gene expression by microarray analysis might not yet be suitable for clinical application in patients with carcinoma of unknown primary. Currently, two assays, the 92-gene RT-PCR assay that cancer type ID that I mentioned before, and a 64 tissue-specific microRNA assay, which is TOO, cancer genetics, are available commercially for prediction of tumor of origin. Okay, so what's the takeaway message here? One, I think we have to recognize that this is a disappointing result. I think this was a well-done, well-conceived study that we would have wanted to be positive. We would have wished that we could use a novel genomic test to better pair patients with chemotherapy. That's off the bat. Unfortunately, this trial failed to show that, and you have overall survival curves that you can look at in figure two, which are largely superimposable. This is an intervention that did not improve outcomes. One iota, the stratified log rank is 0.89. These are largely superimposable OS curves. So. An incredibly promising molecular intervention that should tell you information failed to give information that could be leveraged to improve outcomes. This is a painful lesson in biomedicine that we have seen several times, one notable example being the use of the Swan-Gans catheter, which does provide information about the physiologic pumping of the heart in shock states, and yet that information, though it can be used to change therapies, cannot be used to leverage outcomes as shown in, in randomized controlled trials, and that intervention has fallen out of favor. Yet, we did not learn as a profession those painful lessons, and we embraced the use of this tissue of origin testing. I think at this point, the obligation must be on the manufacturers of these tests, who sell them for several thousand dollars, to prove that the routine application of their test in any setting can leverage improved outcomes. And in the absence of that, society Patients and payers have to ask themselves if this is the best use of the money. It may be a better use of the money to simply give $3,000 in cash to the patients with this condition and allow them to use that money to do what would make their life best than to send that money to a company that provides information that does not improve patient outcomes. These are the kinds of choices we make in healthcare. This is money that could be used for social support, for better nursing care, for someone to coordinate visits, to give rides to the hospital, but instead that money is used for a gene expression profiling test that in the only randomized trial to date has failed to improve outcomes. This is the phenomenon of clinical utility. It isn't good enough that your test gives a reproducible result. It isn't good enough that your test correlates with other gold standard tests. The real question is, when you want to routinely use a costly test in a space, is does the routine application of that test improve patient outcomes? And if so, how much and at what price and with what negative side effects or externalities? That's the question of healthcare. 
And when we absolve manufacturers of this responsibility, when we rely, as in this case, on a Japanese group to perform this study that really could have been performed in the United States in one month with the rate at which we use this across the United States, um, we are doing a disservice to patients and we're doing a disservice to evidence-based medicine. So I guess as is always the case when you caution about the hasty adoption of novel therapy and subsequent research vindicates that caution, you always have mixed feelings. On the one hand, you wish you had been wrong because had you been wrong, that meant you would have had another tool in the arsenal to improve outcomes for people who desperately need better outcomes because we will admit that the care of carcinoma of unknown primary needs to be improved. It desperately needs improvement. So you want to be wrong for that reason. On the other hand, you wish that the caution you had exercised, that prudence, was something that the community understood better. And sometimes these painful examples are what it takes for people to recognize that evidence-based medicine is not something meant to slow innovation. It's something to ensure that innovation is real innovation and not fool's gold and not an illusion, a mirage. That's why we ask for evidence, not because we want to slow things coming to the market. We want things to come to the market that actually work and make people better off. And if not, we want to ask if that money could be used for something better or more meaningful for people who suffer from that condition. All right, on that unfortunate note, we will turn to the interview, which I hope you find very interesting with Dr. Miriam Knoll. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Miriam Knoll via Skype. Miriam is a radiation oncologist who works in Hackensack, and she has a very interesting um, take on a number of important issues at the intersection, I think, of social media, medical education, medical residency, and mentorship and and career development, which I I hope we can talk about today. But let me tell you a little bit about Miriam. Um, She's originally from New York City, the borough of Brooklyn. She did her medical school at NYU and her residency in radiation oncology at Sinai. And now she's not far away because Hackensack is where? New Jersey, Miriam? Yes. Central New Jersey. Central New Jersey. Not too far away. Thank you so much for doing this. Sure. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You've listened to a few of these episodes. Yes, definitely. So you you know this is is the plenary session. Yes. It's amazing. And I love the title. (laughs) (laughs) It's a play on the actual on the actual plenary session. So I wonder if we could just jump right in, because as I was reading about about some of of the many articles that you've written, I was the first thing that struck me is that you write both in the academic literature, but also a great deal in blogs, in social media. Um, Is that true? Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, obviously I'm a doctor, so I I always have great respect for peer-reviewed articles. And certainly in medical school and residency, one of the goals um, is that you want to get published. So that's certainly always been a priority. Um, But at the same time, um, I joined Twitter when I was a resident. And I actually joined Twitter um, sort of just as I got interested because one night my husband said to me, hey, did you know that Eli Langer is on Twitter and he has 14,000 followers? (laughs) So this guy, Eli Langer, who's a guy that I grew up with, he was a social media producer at CNBC at the time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hey, what are you doing on Twitter? So I joined. And by joining Twitter, I kind of opened my eyes up to this whole world of 
you know, online media and online conversation about medicine. So I started seeing different opportunities to share my views on things. So both things happen kind of simultaneously, and I've been lucky to also um, really combine the two things. So talk about media in academic publications mm. and talk about, you know, the culture of medicine and women in medicine and social media in medicine within academic publications. So that's been very exciting. So you find that they're not only complementary, they're kind of intertwined. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, I think that social media is not going away and it's not going away in medicine and it's imperative that we study it so that we can take advantage of it. I think doctors are finally starting to realize that we don't need to be afraid of social media. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was applying to medical school and certainly when I was applying to residency, people told us like, don't be on social media. People mm -hmm. were changing their names, mm -hmm. deleting their accounts. Uh -huh. you know, everyone was like really, really worried. For fear it'll be used against them. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Mm -hmm. And I think people started to realize that, you know, it's not going away. You can't, you know, not be engaged in it. And more and more, um, you know, high impact journals are publishing things about social media. First of, first of all, about it. But I hope soon that we'll move towards what we can do with it instead of just commenting on the fact that it exists, which is sort of <laughs> where we are right now. Well, that's well put. So I want to I want to come back to that. But but first, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, your own background. Um, sure. So you're a student at NYU, and when did you decide you wanted to do radiation oncology? Good question. So I was going through my third year of medical school, and you know, I sort of thought that I would like certain rotations that I ended up not liking. <laughs> and it was getting towards the spring, you know, towards the end of third year. And I remember thinking, well, if I don't like anything, I'm just not going to do a residency <laughs> because, you know, I really felt like I wanted to do something mm -hmm. that I really, really loved. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember it like it was yesterday. My husband, who's a doctor, he was uh, with, with me at NYU at the time. And my father-in-law, who's a urologist, it was literally the same weekend. They both told me about this field that I had never heard of called radiation oncology. My husband had met... Um, a doctor, Dr. Gedgerman, who's actually my boss now, um, he met him for the first time and he's like, oh, this is the best kept secret of medicine. So he told him about it and then he told me about it. And my father-in-law, Dr. Charlie Knoll, who's a urologist, he does um, seed cases, you know, brachytherapy mm -hmm. seed brachy implants together with mm -hmm. urologists. So he was doing some of those cases and was like, hey, you know, I think you might really like this. So at that point, it was already... June of my last of my third oh, year wow. so I had to put like all my eggs in one basket and like literally like I decided that I was going for it without even having done any rotation but as soon as I heard about it I knew like this is perfect for me oh wow and thank God, right yeah yeah it was pretty pretty scary and crazy but I, I'm glad I did it so you're one of the few the few students who pursue the field without having rotated on it yet Yes, yes, that, that is correct. So I made some phone calls, um, spoke to different people so they could tell me, you know, what the field was like. And then I remember going downstairs to the basement, um, NYU, where the 
Tisch uh, Radiation Oncology Department was, which no longer exists because of Sandy. But I went down there and like I found some residents and like was just quizzing them about what things are like. And I was like, you know what? It just sounds perfect. Okay, I'm doing it. So then I had to set up my research rotation and I worked with Dr. Zaleski at Sloan Kettering and I set up my NYU rotation, my home rotation, and that was it. Wow. And thank God it worked. Oh yeah, that's uh and and did you apply to many programs? Uh, cast a wide net? So as you can tell, I've spent all my life in New York and um, my and my husband, who was also the same year at NYU, so we both, uh, he was applying to radiology, which at that time was very competitive. Um, and we didn't couples match and we both only applied in New York. Wow. So that was, I mean, there, there weren't that many programs. I remember when the Monday before match day, uh, when you when you get that email that says either you matched or you didn't match, so we got the email saying that we matched, and then we were like, "What were we thinking?" <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if this email said that we didn't match, but it was you don't even realize how nervous you are until you know you stop being nervous. So yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. There there aren't that many programs in New York, but I knew that you know at that time I had two children. So wow. I had two kids in medical school. My husband was applying to radiology. We knew that we didn't want a couples match. You know, our family was here. So we were just like, you know, hopefully we'll work out. And it did. Wow. Um, that uh, I can't I can't imagine how um, how how anxious you must have been, because I think, you know, many listeners will know this, but um, not only I think is it hard to kind of just focus on one geographic area, but you're both going into two of the most competitive fields there there are in in medicine. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, that must yeah, have been especially that year. Yeah, I mean, you know, things change, but that year they were both very, very, very competitive. So, it was it was really stressful. Wow. So I'm glad that worked out. And then you were a resident at Sinai, um, yeah. where which is a five year program. Is that right? Yeah, so it's one year of internal medicine. You could technically do like a transitional year or pediatrics, but most people do medicine. Um, and I actually did it at Angle Hospital, which is one of Sinai's hospitals in New Jersey, mm -hmm. um, one of their affiliates. And um, my husband was at Columbia's Harlem Hospital, um, and his program was, he, he also did one year and then four years, but in radiology, they always do a fellowship. So it ended up being six years. I see. So, and mine was one of medicine and then four years of radiation oncology. Wow. And and then what made you make the move to Hackensack? So um, when I was looking for a job, I knew that, again, I wanted to stay in the New, uh, York, New York area, New York, New Jersey area. At the time, I was actually living in New Jersey, so Hackensack was really close. But I, I, I cast what I would consider a wide net given the fact that I was looking only in New York, New Jersey. Um, and I was looking preferably for a private practice. Um, both my parents are doctors. My mother is a pediatrician mm -hmm. and my father is a vascular surgeon. And they both had offices in the house that I grew up in, in Brooklyn. Wow. So they both, yeah, and my uncle, who's a cardiologist, his office was also in our house. So and my mother had some other doctors working with her. So I grew up kind of in what I would call a mini clinic, even uh -huh. though it looked like a regular house from the outside. And my parents are still working. They love what they do, are never gonna retire. Still from so home, I had still very, from the house? 
bill from the house. Yes, my mother still works in the basement, and my father has an office on the first floor that it also extends to the house next door, which they own, which also has an office there. So it's a very unique situation, um, but that I was uh, very lucky to grow up in. My parents were always close by, you know, mm -hmm. so um, I used to come home from school as a kid and go downstairs with my cut-up apples and just hang out. So... Um, so my parents are in private practice, and they love it. And um, so for me, you know, I, I always wanted to go into private practice. And mm -hmm. um, it's interesting because I think a lot of people who go into private practice have that perspective that they've had parents who were in private practice. Not all, obviously, but many that I've spoken to. Um, so I, you know, it's interesting. It's it's New York, New Jersey. It's very very hard to find jobs. I always say. Everyone says that it's hard to find your job, just like everyone says that the year that they applied to medical school was the hardest <laughs> ever. Uh -huh. And every person who applies to law school says that their year was yeah. the hardest ever and fill in the blank for any other thing. So the same thing with jobs. I was like, I've never met anyone who said they're finding their job was easy. <laughs> but certainly everyone, no, for real, like yeah. you, no matter what kind of job you're looking That's for. That's a fair like, oh, point. Yeah, hard. you're right. You're right. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle it. it. It was hard to find a job, and I think the radiation oncology job market is still difficult, as I'm sure it is with medical oncology and everything else. Um, but I, so I knew that like looking at the Astro job site was not going to work for me. Obviously, I signed up for it because it's fun to see what's out there. Mm -hmm. But I knew that you know any job that was going to work for me was probably not going to be posted because most jobs in New York, New Jersey are filled like internally before they ever get posted. So I just like really made phone calls to like every single department um, in New York, New Jersey that I could find, and I spoke to every single person that I knew. Um, and it's actually interesting. I called. Um, the radiation oncology department at Hackensack Mountainside, which is one of Hackensack's hospitals. It's a community hospital in Montclair. And even though it's only a 20 minute drive from the main Hackensack, it's really in Montclair and serves that community. New Jersey is very, very dense. So it's really considered a community hospital. So I call there and the way that I would, you know, talk was I would say, hi, you know, I'm Dr. Noel. Can I speak with Dr. So-and-so? And they'd always put me through. And then it would, I would say, hi, you know, I'm, I'm a senior resident. I'm just starting my job search. You know, do you have any time to talk? So, and he invited me down to talk to him as many uh, other doctors did, which was so nice because, you know, you never know if someone's hired or not, but you still get something out of mm -hmm. talking to meeting someone in person. So anyway, Long story short, he invites me to come down. It wasn't an official interview at all, but he, you know, we had a great conversation. He took me to meet the CEO of the hospital. He took me to tumor board. I met all these people. Turns out this doctor that I had spoken to, his contract was up with the hospital. And for many reasons, Hackensack ended up taking over radiation oncology. I had already met the CEO and met all the doctors and everything. And then when I interviewed at Hackensack to be hired there, I ended up 
being primarily at Mountainside. So just interesting how things work out. You know, it's like finding a job is always difficult, um, but I find the best way, and I tell this to trainees all the time, that like you really got to put yourself out there because no one is going to find a job for you. You got to find it yourself. And certainly if you're looking in an area like New York, New Jersey, you know, the jobs are not going to be posted on any website. So you have to find it out through people that you know. Wow. I guess that I find this to be such an interesting story. I guess just to <laughs> pull on a, a few things that I think are super interesting. So it sounds like to me, I mean, I'm going to come to the jobs, but the first thing that jumped out at me was it sounds like your parents are not just in private practice, but they're in self-employed physician-owned practices. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. So um, my parents graduated in the 80s, uh -huh. and um, at that time it was much more common for yeah. doctors to hang a shield up, a uh, shingle, you know, just hang their shingle up and open their practice. And um, as you're saying and pointing out, it's obviously very unusual to do that very now. Very difficult but, to yeah, do that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, it's certainly been, I mean, I can't speak for my parents in the sense that I don't know details really. I'm not involved in, in their practice at all. But, you know, I, I know my mother's always talking about this insurance, that insurance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's, it's definitely um, a major change over the years. But they've, they've uh, you know, continued to do it and have no plans to retire. Like, I mean it. Like, my, people ask me, you know, because I, I moved to Long Island uh -huh. and my sister's there and people always ask me, oh, when are your parents going to move out? And I'm like, never. They're working. Like that's, no. that's one of the things about being a doctor that you don't have to retire. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a lot of there are all sorts of new regulations now. Like I know a lot of hospitals are passing, uh -huh. you know, bylaws about forced retirement or forced, um, you know, physical exams right. if you're above age 70 or whatever. I happen to be very against those because I always feel like that's one of the things about being a doctor that, you, you know, no one's forced me to retire. You have that autonomy. You're able to, you know, practice as long as you want. And uh, I think that's one of the great joys of being a doctor. The other thing that jumped out at me was that um, y you you did something that I think is very brave, uh, and I, honestly, I didn't do, and I didn't have, I didn't even think about doing, which is you cold called different people to find a job. Um, so you were you were yeah. very proactive. Um, yeah. And um, and 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 where did where did that come from? You know, did, did were you advised that? Is that your personality, or you just you know you really needed to live in this area, so you had your back against the wall sort of picture? Yeah. So you know, when I when I realized I needed to start looking for a job, um, I would say even before then, like already when I was halfway through residency, I was already thinking about oh when I'm done, you know, because no matter how great your program is, and I, I loved Sinai, and I'm, I'm very grateful to my excellent training. Um, you know, it's hard to be in training, so I was always very uh, you know I had a long uh, view. And I remember thinking, okay, in a year from now, I'm gonna start looking for a job, or in a year and a half from now, I'm gonna start looking for a job. So I was already, you know, kind of always talking to people. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure who told me, you know, like, gave me the idea. I think I just was like, you know, I have to find a job, and how am I gonna find one? So I gotta talk to people. So um, I actually, 
met my, I brought my kids to the pediatrician and I remember asking her, how did you find your job? And she told me, this is Dr. Pina Kanarik, she told me that she called pediatricians' offices mm. in Teaneck where she was living. I, I think she must have, now that I'm thinking of it, I think she was the one who gave me that idea. And I was I like, see. hey, why not? So, you know, and people also a lot of times will send emails. We yes. don't always get a response. Correct. That's what I was about you know? to say. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. And it's so funny because just today somebody um, texted me and asked me if I know of any jobs in the area. And I, and I told him, I was like, cold call. And he wrote back to me. He's like, I never even thought about it. I've been emailing. I was like, yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. And my husband is also very um good with these kind of things and is very business oriented and he always told me everything is better in person so when i would cold call and i would say hi you know i'm dr so-and-so um you know i'm just starting my job search um i would love to talk to you about any opportunities or i'd love to talk to you if you have any time you know you don't have to say like are you looking to hire you can say that but more often i would just say like you know i would love to come down and talk to you and they pretty much always said yes. Mm. So I would go down there and, you know, talk to them. And sometimes they were hiring and sometimes they weren't. But you never know what's going to come out of it. And it definitely served me well because it kind of puts you in the mindset of you're an adult, you're a professional, you've got to sell yourself because that's what you got to do on an interview anyway. Right. And to this day, you know, I made some, I had relationships with people that I never would have otherwise met. Just recently, I had a patient that was treated at one of the hospitals in New Jersey where I went down just to really schmooze and talk. And the patient subsequently moved. And now I was treating the patient, and it can get complicated with records and things. So I just picked up the phone and I called him. And, you know, I was like, Hi, Dr. Rosenbluth, how are you? Like, I had met him in person a few years before, you know? So mm. I guess I yeah, would say. I definitely- recommend it it sounds like a great idea and I wish um, I wish I talked to you many years ago because I think you're right uh, and I like and I like everything about your approach you called them which actually you know ensured that you would hear something back um, and I'll tell listeners in a sec and then the next thing is you set up a face-to-face meeting not knowing if there's a job or not because uh, you know you never know what yeah. may happen and and that's in fact what led to your current job um, I think you never know exactly I would not it's it's Unlikely that I would be in the job that I have now had I not done that. I see. Actually, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm just remembering now. The story gets more interesting. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Now I'm remembering. You know, it's not that long ago, but, you know, you kind of block out those really stressful times in your life. This is actually what happened. Why did I decide to call this hospital in New Jersey? Mm -hmm. I never heard of it. It's like, you know, a little hospital. What happened was I was at a family get together and my husband's cousins was there and I hadn't seen her in a while. Hi, how are you? How's everything? I said, hi, I'm doing great. You know, I'm actually just starting to look for a job. Do you know of anything? And almost everyone that I said that to would like give like a little giggle because like they weren't doctors and they Uh didn't work in hospitals. Why am I asking them? But I said that to every person that I met because I was super excited to be graduating in, you know, a year. So, so what happened was she went home and she said, oh, um, okay, very nice. She went home. She she mentioned it to her father-in-law who happened to be an interventional radiologist. Okay. He then said, sure, tell her to call me. I spoke to him. He called his friend at a radiation oncology practice in New Jersey. I spoke to him. 
And he wasn't hiring, but he said, I heard that Dr. Barba might be retiring. And that's why I called Dr. Barba in Montclair. Now I'm remembering. So it's even more of a roundabout story. But again, it only happened because I told every person that I met, and they would say, hi, how are you? You know, and I would say, yes, I'm actually finally almost done. I'm starting to look for a job. Do you have you heard of anything? Do you know anyone? Wow. So, so yeah. That is a great story. <laughs> you know, this really reminds me of um, one of an, another article that's sort of similar in theme that you had written for uh, an online uh, forum called In Training. And this is about tips for applying for residency. And you tried to make this not just about radiation oncology, but about uh, every residency. And some of your tips yeah. include, um, you know, believe in yourself and put yourself forward, which it sounds like is the same thread that you carried forth in your job search. Um, your other themes are realize that it's difficult, um, and especially in some fields that are very coveted and sought after. Uh, I, one that I really liked was yeah. don't just take a year off. I think many people do who are pursuing very competitive yeah. fields take a year off and think that their match is then guaranteed, but it isn't. You caution. Do yeah. away rotations, which you didn't. Did you do the away rotations? Because it sounds like you came uh. to this very late. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I did in a, in a way, meaning not at my institution. I did one I at Memorial. Okay. And I did one at Sinai. Yeah. And then be normal. Yeah, that's very important for radiation. Yeah, it's very let's talk about that. And 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 why? Yeah. How important is it? Yeah, because they get to know the person. Yeah. So so there's two things. Um, you know, and again, I'm I'm only sharing my experience. I I've never been on the other side. I'm uh -huh. not involved in residency programs now. Um, but basically, um, first of all, it, it looks nice on your resume to show that you spent time at other institutions, especially, you know, really good institutions because you got experience there. Um, and there's no guarantee that they'll offer you an interview. Um, but it's so nice to, you know, say that you rotated at a place like Sloan Kettering or MD Anderson or, you know, that was, I mean, you know, big institutions. Um, but the most important thing is because it's sort of like an interview. So I remember, you know, a lot of people were looking forward to fourth year as being kind of like a break, like, you know, you're still in medical school, but it's a lot easier. And I remember the opposite. I worked so hard in my fourth year because it was like, you know, interview after interview after interview with every rotation is a month long interview. So you want it, you, you have to do a really, really good job. So you're taking a risk because if you mess up, then they're never going to match you. But if you, you know, do a really good job, you know, you have to think of, and I, I'm going to quote my husband here because it's the best advice ever, which is that whoever it is, it's a, a, that's on the other side of the interview or, exchange that you're having they're just a regular person right they may have a lot of power over you mm -hmm. or over a certain situation but they're a regular person so put yourself in their shoes if someone is interviewing if i was interviewing someone else and i had just spent a whole month with them mm -hmm. and i thought they were really smart and motivated and hardworking, i would rather rank them higher than someone i don't know right so i think i think that that's how it is you know i mean obviously you have to you want to reach for the stars and you don't want to apply for something that's totally not going to happen. But given the fact that, you know, if you're a good candidate, just like everyone else, if you've done a really good job in that month, they're automatically going to rank you higher. So for that reason alone, it's very good to do away rotations. I think that's very good advice. And it's also, I think, very logical um, for someone to 
put more stock in having had an extended, essentially one month long interview with someone than the yeah. very brief 20 minutes you can spend with someone. Yeah. So I think a lot of students don't realize through no fault of their own, you know, they've never been in a work environment before. Most students, you know, most students are still at a college and they don't realize that as nervous as medical students are about matching, the programs are also worried in a sense. And they want to make sure that they get trainees that are going to be committed. They're going to have a good attitude. They're going to work hard, you know, pretty much everyone in medical school is smart. So that's not what they're worried about. They mm. want to make sure that, you know, people say, oh yeah, you have to make sure it's a good fit. That's really true. They want to make sure that you're going to be a good coworker because that's what you're going to be for the next how many years. And if you're the most brilliant person in the world, but you're weird and you can't get along with people and you have a bad attitude, they don't want you. So that, that's really what the interview, that's really what the interview is for. If you've gotten the interview, you're equal with everyone else. Right now, you need to convince them that you're going to be an asset to them. You're going to help them. And that's the same thing with a job interview. You know, they're not mm -hmm. asking how smart you are. They're, at least for radiation, they're not asking cases. You know, they may ask you about, well, how do you do this? How do you do that? Because people are really interested, you know, how do other programs do things? How do you set up these patients? What, you know, what kind of machines do you have? That's kind of just like the geeky stuff. <laughs> but for the, most part, yeah, for the most part, they really just want to know, like, how are you going to help us? You know, they're thinking about themselves. And it's interesting talking about social media because I got a lot of questions from people about social media, you know, on my interview trail or on my interview schmoozes, you know, mm -hmm. uh, when I met different people. And I realized like, hey, yeah, this is interesting to people. <laughs> so mm. I've since advised people, you know, uh, trainees that like, you know, yeah, talk about that on your interviews because that's interesting. People, you know, you have a skill that other people don't have. So build that up. You know, talk about it. That's well put. It reminds me of something one of my, um, a student I worked with a while back told me that we published a paper about Twitter, and he said on the interview trail he had done a lot of other work. Uh, certainly this was not to the extent of what he had done, uh, but he said the, the thing people wanted to talk about most was the research he had done about Twitter, and I thought that was quite interesting. Right. And you, something you yeah. said echoes something that um, my old internal medicine program director used to say, um, which I think I mentioned on this podcast, which is that um, residents should be nice, hardworking, and smart, and in that order. Uh, because as you put it, being a good colleague yeah. is a lot more about what they are looking for in the interview. Um, and, and, and you know, there are lots of people who are smart, but, uh, you know, people really do want a colleague they can get along with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is something that a lot of students and trainees don't realize in general about medicine, and I think can be frustrating in people's careers. Um, because if you think about it, what kind of people, what kind of personalities become doctors? People who follow the rules, That's people true. who yeah. are Right. I mean, you can't get through even pre-med in college if you're not going to follow the rules. Mm -hmm. you got to study hard, put your head down. You can't, you know, for the most part, you know, most of us do need to study. You know, um, you can't go out partying all the time. That, you know, tends to not be the most extroverted people and people who are OK with authority and following the rules. And then at some point you realize that, like, that's not enough. Like, if you want to succeed in medicine, you gotta, you know, start using some of those other personality traits that you really forgot about. And I, I think, 
again, I, you know, I, I can't say for sure, but um, I, I do feel strongly that that's part of the problem of how we got to where we are in medicine today. I think doctors are too used to following the rules and not used to enough standing up for ourselves and really taking control of healthcare, of our environment, of our practice environment, of our EHRs, of, you know, research style, everything. We're, we're so used to kind of going with the flow because people do what they do because that's what they do and that's what they've always done. We're used to following the rules and it getting us to where we want it to go. But that's that doesn't get you anywhere once you start practicing. I guess I, I find this very interesting what you're saying. So, I mean, do you, you're sort of saying that um, one of the things that we physicians are frustrated with a lot is the rise of the administrative healthcare state, how so many and perhaps even more and more decisions are made by non-physician members of hospitals um, who control yeah. significant portions of the budget and dictate how yes. we practice medicine impose upon yes. physicians the the EHR, which many yes. of us are frustrated with. And you're saying that you yeah. think part of the reason why doctors have allowed this to happen is that we are by nature like soldiers in the army, good at taking orders. That's what we've been conditioned yes. to do. Yes. I mean, what are the number one personality trait mm -hmm. that you need to get to be a doctor is grit, right? And there's articles about this. You know, grit. What's grit in yeah, medicine? Me. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't mean the same thing in other fields, but in medicine, grit means follow the rules, <laughs> ignore your current environment, continue having an out of body experience. That's what it is, right? Uh -huh. It's ignoring everything around you and focusing on the future. What's the future? Being out of the abusive environment that is medicine. I mean, and that's you say that fact. because I, it, it's that we work so. When you're a student, you have to work long hours. People often speak down to you. These are the things that yeah. the only way to survive is just to put your head down and focus and say, "I got to get through it. this." You agree? That's it. Yeah. That's it. That's the, the only way <laughs> you can get through training without dying by suicide. The <laughs> only way. The only way. And again, I say this not as someone who has had a difficult time, uh -huh. you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just share, you know, honestly, you know, I got married my first year of medical school. I had two children in medical school. My husband was um, a year behind me, but I took the year off when my older son was born. So we did third and fourth year together, which was amazing. My parents paid all my tuition and living expenses. My husband's parents paid his tuition and living expenses, so we had no debt, we had help. I mean, I, I'm saying this from a, a very grateful place. Mm -hmm. And I'm lucky to have graduated from a great school and went to a great residency program that I loved. But at the same time, I'm an observer and a thinker. So I, I'm saying this on behalf of everyone, and I'm not saying it specifically amongst my, for myself. But when I talk to students, um, you know, I tell them like med being a medical student is like being a cockroach. OK, like you're gross, you're annoying. No one wants to see you. No one wants to act like you exist. OK, being a resident is like an ant. You get like a shred of respect. You know? <laughs> uh -huh, the fact uh -huh. is, you know, there's no one in the hospital. No one. Not the person who cleans the toilets, not the person who works in food services, certainly not the nurses or, you know, physician extenders that would agree to be treated so poorly 
by their employer, which is the hospital. No one. And there's it, no one that would do it. And yet, and yet, trainees have no choice because if they say anything or try to leave, they lose everything. You, you're in your 30s. You have, for the most part, two to three hundred thousand dollars in debt and zero job prospects. I mean, what kind of job are you going to get with, you know, one year of training? You know, you can hardly get a job in pharma. So we need to teach science after all that time and money and debt. So, you know, the only way to get through it is grit, which is it's going to be okay when I'm done with this. So just ignore everything. Put your head down. Try to, you know, meet the minimum basic needs for yourself. Like if you need to sleep, try to get some sleep and that's it. So would you say this is accurate, um, which is that... um I guess you're saying, and I think many, and there's a huge literature that supports this, and you've written articles on this, which is that um, that residency training is long work hours, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about what you've written about, you know, sleep-deprived doctors can make more mistakes, and it can lead to motor vehicle accidents and needle sticks, and so there is a risk to residents yeah. for working these long hours. And part of what leads to this system is the fact that, one, doctors are good at delayed gratification, because you have to go at least yeah. a decade before you really get uh, any sort of real paycheck, quote unquote, real paycheck. Um, the other thing is th our training is all or nothing. So in other words, if you don't, if you finish residency, you can practice that specialty. If you do 75%, 85%, you can do nothing with yeah. that. And those, nothing. nothing. And, and that combination of factors leads to a very lopsided power situation where the resident yeah really has no bargaining power in terms of setting their own hours, in terms of setting the quality of their work, in terms of saying no to tasks. Um, and yeah. the people who survive that are people who can look in the distance and say, it will all be worth it someday. Yes, but you know, that's not enough. Not only looking mm -hmm. towards the distance, yeah. but also being able to carve out some sort of self during that process. You know, because you have to have you know a self identity that's beyond just being asked to do tasks by your team or immediate supervisor. So I was always kind of jealous of those residents who were able to get the vacation days they want. You know, I remember a resident once telling me you know, we had a certain uh, rotation that the physician didn't want you taking vacation during that time. Mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason, I was obviously unfair because you should be able to take vacation whenever you want, but whatever. So I remember him telling me, you know, oh, you know, I told her that it was, you know, my sister's wedding. And like, it wasn't, but he just said that. So I like, see. you basically, I'm looking at him and I'm thinking like, you're telling me the only way to get through this is to lie? Mm -hmm. But like, that's actually true. I look back and like the people who like made it, like didn't just get through, but like made it with their sense of identity and happiness intact were the people who had that strong sense of self and were able to kind of carve out what they needed in addition to having that grit of it will be okay in the end. And that's really, really challenging. And I want to add to what you said, you know, it isn't just all or nothing that makes it hard it's that you have nowhere else to go you can't switch programs that's a big problem why can't people switch programs and like, if they do it's very very difficult it's very difficult very if it's, difficult. Uh -huh. 
You could get in trouble just for having a discussion with the program director. Huh. Have you had colleagues who didn't make it through, who um, fell out in medical school or in residency, who are doing other things? Um, How does this resonate so deeply with you? I feel like you've had some experiences. Um, well, or you or you've what? known a lot like, of people who've struggled very hard and made it through. You know what? I'm not sure why I feel so strongly about yeah. it. <laughs> I would say I have strong opinions about a lot of things. Um, and gotten married so young and having kids young, uh-huh. you know, and coming from a family of doctors. I mean, we have a lot of doctors in the family. Um, so I think about things a lot. Um, I know some people who dropped out of medical school. Uh-huh. That was something that had an impression on me where I remember thinking, how could you? drop out of medical school. That's crazy. I remember when I got into medical school, I remember feeling like, that's it. I'm done. I can die now. I, you know, I've I've accomplished my life. I remember thinking that so clearly. And then afterwards, I'm like, I was so wrong. Like that was the beginning, you know? And, um, and then I, I know, so I know people that switch into radiation oncology. There are quite a few residents that switch into it. Like, you know, a friend like did neurosurgery for a couple of years and that switched into it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I talk with a lot of people. I've always, you know, liked talking with other residents, um, um, you know, neurosurgery residents I've worked with, you know, cause of radiosurgery. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I, I try to, you know, hear from people, you know, what they're thinking. And, you know, I'm now very involved in social media. So like online physician groups, uh, you know, absolutely. one thing that had a very big impression on me. So I'm a member of PMG, Physician Mom Group, which was started by Dr. Ala Sabri, who's emergency medicine doctor in California. And she started PMG um, four years ago, and it already has over 71,000 members. Wow. So that has been eye-opening. And we have some offshoots of it. We have the Hemonc Women Physicians Group, which is not just Hemonc, but all oncology. So I'm a member. We have a radiation oncology one. They have one. This is fascinating to me. I'm not in it, but they have one for women who have stay-at-home spouses, wow. which is fascinating uh-huh. to me. I mean, they're, they're a primary breadwinner. So there's tons of different them. But basically, it's fascinating to me because like, Every day on PMG, you have someone posting anonymously about maternity leave. They're like, oh, and you're allowed to post anonymously by messaging a certain you know, account that will post it on your behalf. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of anonymous things that people post, really fascinating issues, um, you know, interpersonal, professional, all different kinds of things. So, but like one thing that comes up all the time over and over and over and over is maternity leave. Like, Which is lousy. It's there is none. There is none. There is no policy. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah, it's ridiculous. And it's like people, but the responses from people are even worse because it gets me so upset. How like there's no difference between today and 50 years ago. Mm. No difference at all. Wait, tell me about that. What are the responses? Responses that don't take it seriously. 
people respond saying, you know, well, when I gave birth, ah, right. I worked until, you know, the, you know, until my water broke and I only took off two days and blah, blah, blah. And other people would say, you know, well, you know, if you tell your program director in advance, maybe you cannot have to finish residency more than this amount. But it's like every specialty, no matter when their quoted experience was from, whether it's this year or 30 years ago or 50 years ago, because we have not 50 years ago, but we do have, you know, doctors that are in their 50s and 60s that are in the group. And there's no policy. Why doesn't the ECGME have a policy? And you start to realize, and this is something that I've learned from being active on social media, is that when you have an idea in your head that makes no sense to you, Mm -hmm. just because no one in your immediate surroundings feels the same way doesn't mean that you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, I guess and this happens right? So it's like wh- when I look around I'm like why is there no maternity leave policy but no one else around me is a, it cares or, or or has a thought about it. I keep my mouth shut, but then I go online 2 years later and I see there's an entire community of female physicians who have all had the exact same experience. So, yeah, someone's got to do something. Absolutely. And I guess one of the things you're saying that I hear is that um one of the ways in which people dismiss the concern on vital issues like this is to say, well, it, it, this wasn't there 20 years ago. Things were like yes. this 20 years ago, as if that means yes. that they should always be this way going forward. We see this argument, I think, as you're pointing out on the maternity leave, also for the resident work hours, in every way yes. in which the profession is dehumanizing and cruel and fundamentally yes. needs to be reformed, people say, well, yes. I got through it that way. What yes. do you think? That argument yes. is just ridiculous. It doesn't hold water. Yeah, so so um, I just want to clarify. Yeah. Those comments are, are not common on PMG. I, um, I mean, and, uh, you know, for the most part, it's, it's definitely a very supportive place. But what I'm saying is, you know, people would share their experiences and would say, well, this is how it was 30 years ago. I'm not sure what your what the advice would be now. Or, you know, on occasion, someone would say, well, do you think I should take off before I give birth? And people would say, well, no, I don't think you should. I think you should save your, you know, uh, begged favors for after you give birth, not before. So people do share all different things. But but uh, your point of doctors sharing, well, this is how it was and I did it so so should you yes absolutely there is a whole lot of that going on and it is so ridiculous and it is so wrong let me tell you why in the 80s for example when my parents went to medical school there were no shelf exams (laughs) right there was no there weren't there was no EMR there was no um, expectation to do research none of this existed well, these are new things that are being piled on top of doctors. They had a lot more autonomy. Now you want to say, you know, they were scared out of their minds running an entire emergency room by themselves. Yeah, that's scary. But you know what? And when somebody died, unfortunately, but nothing happened, meaning you weren't blamed. So this oversight that we have now on residents where not only do you have to take your boards, but you need to do really, really well on them. That didn't exist. This requirement of doing research, publishing, um, doing really well on exams, 
this oversight, constant, constant oversight. None of this existed. These are new requirements you're putting on top of trainees. In addition, you're spitting these trainees out into an environment where they're not valued, they're not respected. There are physicians being fired all across the United States and are not in New York, but again, because I'm involved in social media, I, I know this to be true with other physicians that I speak to. They're being fired all across America and being replaced with nurse practitioners and physician assistants. We thought it would never happen. It is happening now. They're firing physician groups and just telling them, too bad, you're gone. We want to save money. We, they don't, we don't care what happened to the patient. So you're putting people into a new environment, but you're not changing anything else. Hmm. And that's not fair. And, oh, and the student loans. Uh, right. Student loans work. Right? It's way different now. People who graduated medical school in the 80s, their entire medical school bill was less than $10,000. Now it's two, $300,000 average medical student debt. So you can't compare the two. Mm. There are many, many doctors in America who don't like their jobs. They're burned out. They hate what they do. Not because they hate medicine, because they hate their jobs, right? Your job is different than being a physician. And they can't quit because they can't pay back their loans. How sad is that? Can I? I want to ask you now, um, because I think you're 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 hitting on so many important issues. What what are the like five reforms that you think would really help us a lot? Um, what are the, what's the top of your list in terms of? I think everything you're talking about to me, it seems like one, to make it a more humane training place and also to restore the joy of medical practice, which is a joy I think you see embodied in your parents and how they practice. And many of the things that have changed to medicine, which were not changed by doctors, but by administrators, have sucked that joy away. And so it seems like yes. to me there are these two threads that you're pulling on the humanity of it, yeah. which and I, I yeah. and there's no doubt in my mind, and because you know I'm a I, these issues bother me a great deal too, which is that it's yeah. very very difficult to be a resident, and I I think that yeah. the NRMP was once sued under antitrust litigation, and I think it probably should have been successful had it not been for the exemption. Absolutely. And the other. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So I totally agree with you. I I I think the problem. Both things that you've mentioned come from the same problem, and I've never thought about it this way, so so I'm excited to, to talk this out with you. Uh-huh. I think it's a problem of the people in power uh-huh. not, not including the people that they have the power over in the conversation. I so I had written an article um, when I was a resident, actually, um, I was a little scared, but I was already graduating, so I put it out. Again, it wasn't a comment <laughs> on Sinai, it was uh-huh. just a comment in general. And um, so, you know, for example, the ACGME survey, right? Uh-huh. I think it's great. Like, it's obviously the case that program directors are afraid of the results. That's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. That's literally the only thing that trainees have in terms of putting something over program directors and hospitals heads, right? Do you mind if I explain real quick? What you mean is this is an anonymous survey that they fill out, the residents fill out every year. 
And the reason it gives residents power is that nobody knows who wrote what, but those results are centrally reported and collected. And programs that have a string of violations, work hour violations and other sorts of violations for the limited rules we do have in place, um, they can get dinged and they can be put on probation, for instance. And so that's why it's, yeah. it's as you say, um, one of the checks and balances. Go on. Sorry. Yeah. 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 So I think it's great that the ACGME has a survey because it's a way for them to get anonymous information from a group of people that they never would have otherwise gotten information from, right? You, you don't want to impose, you know, some sort of anonymous reporting that is only from the residents. They obviously realize that they need to go out there and get the information. And the program directors are appropriately you know, afraid of negative results because they know it has real ramifications on their program. So that's great. But I don't think it goes nearly far enough because those same residents are very afraid of reporting negative things because what can ultimately happen? Their program can be shut down. And, and, that then, doesn't they, and then they pay the price because they don't get credit for those years of service if the program is shut down. Isn't that the case? If the program loses its ACGME accreditation and they keep working, they're not working towards their graduation. You know what? I, I didn't know that detail. Uh -huh. I know that if a program does get shut down, you know, they take their funding with them, which uh -huh. is great. Meaning, so so there are some ways to get through that, but yeah, I mean, who wants to have gone to a program that shut down? That's right. not great. Then you have to, you know, move and, you know, it, it's not easy. So, you know, residents are sort of working against their own interests. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I don't know about you, but no matter how much they say something is anonymous, I personally never believe it. I believe that if they wanted to, they could look it up. So for self-preservation, I think most residents are afraid of seeing something negative. I think the, the main complaint I have is that they should be polling graduates a year later and two years later if they really wanted to improve. Uh, those people who have just left. Absolutely. Why is your opinion no longer important just because you, you left? They should continue to poll each program's residents a year later, two years later, three years later. What could be improved? But also, a lot of the issues with residency are system-wide. You know, the match is a horrible process. Again, I know, you know, it won the Nobel Prize, but we're in a different place nowadays. And the match is horrible. Mm -hmm. Just to give an example of something the match can't fix just because of the way it is. So radiation oncology is a quarter percent female. And it's been that way for about 30 years. Is that a horrible thing? No, of course not. Did anybody do that because they hate women? No, of course not. But in general, if you want uh, the best and the brightest, you want you know someone's gender or background to be unimportant, and therefore, for whatever reason that minorities and women aren't entering our field, we want to try to counteract that as as a field. I say this on behalf of many other radiation oncologists who feel the same way. So, you know, we can't fix it with the match because you can only match people into a field that they apply into. But what if in September and October, each program would go out there and be proactive and encourage minorities mm -hmm. to apply mm -hmm. and allow them to match early? Again, I hate that I have to say this, but we're not talking about people who are not qualified. We're talking about qualified candidates who, for whatever reason, for unbiased or 
unconscious bias for whatever reason are not applying into our field we can get them to apply because we can say we're giving you a spot you're qualified you're wonderful but also don't worry about the match i see i see you can't fix that you can't fix it with the match because it's too late you can only match people who apply into the match and the same thing with every field you know whether it's surgery or you know you have you you can't stack the odds in a way to fix things in a positive way because you're forced to go along with the charade not only that the match really just promotes a lot of lying and fraud because Every program on their end, they're making phone calls to each other. The program director secretaries are calling each other. There's too much behind the scenes going on. And the students are the ones that suffer. And you know what? People say to me when I say this, well, the match, you know, promotes the student's interest first. That's the algorithm. You know what? I can understand the algorithm and I'm not an idiot and I've been in the program and I don't know anyone that understands the algorithm. The algorithm doesn't make sense. So, you know, we got to do what makes sense. There's no reason for there to be a match. People say, what do you mean? Everyone's going to graduate at the same time. It's going to be chaos. And what happens when you're looking for a job? You look for a job, right? Residency is a job. If there were programs that were offering higher pay, yes, they would get better residents. What's wrong with that? Why can residents be paid more? There's so much in our system that it makes no sense at all. And just continue because that's the way it's been. People don't have the courage to change it. Wow. It's a problem. So um, I think there's there's so many interesting things that you, you raised and um, – and I know our time is dwindling. So I just want to say, I want to summarize a little bit what I think I think are yeah. like the major themes of, you know, what, what you're saying. I, I guess I, I feel like, um, you know, one of the things that motivates you deeply in medicine is this desire to, and, and this experience you had by, by watching two people who really love to practice, who ran an independent medical practice for me, even today, um, you know? Yeah. And and many of the things that have changed medicine from, you know, when when you and I were growing up to now are these forces that have made the practice have diminished the practice of medicine in a way that makes it a lot tougher, I think, on physicians. And the other thing you care deeply about is that, as you put it, I think, which is that all the situations in which there's a power imbalance and the match may perpetuate many of these power imbalances. And so I guess I would say I want to direct listeners to your your many writings on this topic, which I think are, you know, really interesting. And I was reading through um, in preparation of this. Um, Miriam Knoll, it's been a pleasure to have you on the plenary session. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure and it's my honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry we got cut off a little bit, but I hope to have you on again and hopefully in person. So I'll be able to talk to you at Absolutely. length. Absolutely. Looking forward. You take care. Thank you so much. Thanks. Have a great day. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? 
Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.